Let's open the scriptures this morning again to Romans 8. Last Sunday we read the first half of the chapter in connection with Lord's Day 9 of the Catechism and the truth of God as our Father. Now we're going to read the second half of the chapter in connection with Lord's Day 10 and the truth of his providence. So we begin reading at verse 18 of Romans 8. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also make, helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, with him, also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. And let's consider the teaching of the Catechism in Lord's Day 10 this morning. In the back of the Psalter, page 7. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence doth still uphold all things, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we continue our consideration of the first part of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith, the first part of the Apostles' Creed concerning God the Father. Last time we began to consider what is meant by those words of the first article of our Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we saw from the Catechism that we believe that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is also our God and Father for the sake of Christ, has made the heavens and the earth and all things out of nothing. And, likewise, that he upholds and governs all things by his eternal counsel and providence. That's already stated in Lord's Day 9. This morning, we are going to continue to consider the truth about God as our Father, the truth that he is the almighty maker of heaven and earth, by focusing our attention on that glorious, comforting truth of the providence of God. The word providence only appears in the King James Version of the Bible in one place, And in that one place, it does not refer to the providence of God. So, the term providence does not appear in the Bible anywhere in reference to the truth that we are considering this morning. However, the marvelous truth that we express by the phrase, the providence of God, is taught in the Holy Scriptures in a variety of ways, through a variety of words from the beginning to the very end. It is one of the chief 
truths of Scripture and one of the chief truths about God. So let's consider it this morning under the theme, the almighty and omnipresent power of God. First of all, we're going to notice the gospel of God's providence. Secondly, the extent of God's providence. And finally, the benefits of knowing God's providence. In the beginning, God the Father Almighty created the heavens and the earth and all things that are in them out of nothing by the word of his power. But after God created the heavens and the earth and all things, he did not establish the world with a certain set of natural laws and principles and then, as it were, give the universe a good push or a good nudge and then set all things in motion and then leave the universe and allow all things to just run by themselves, to run according to those natural laws and principles. So that from the beginning, when God created the universe until now, all things have come into being by chance, and all things have happened by chance. That is the philosophy that is sometimes known as deism, that arose several hundred years ago through European thinkers and American thinkers. That philosophy of deism teaches that God is like a clockmaker. And in the beginning, he made the universe, this beautiful grandfather clock. And he wound up the clock with all of its many parts, but then he left, and he allows that clock to run on its own. It has all of the powers and all of the principles in itself to run itself. That was the teaching of deism. That is false. That philosophy is still believed by many today. In fact, it is a very popular belief. You hear people saying that they believe in God, but what they really mean is they believe in the God of deism. They believe in a God who created the world, but then has nothing more to do with it because all things happen by natural causes and by chance. What we believe according to the scriptures and the Reformed confessions is that after that very first moment called the beginning, when God brought out of nothing the whole universe, God immediately began to uphold and govern that universe by the power of his almighty hand. From the uttermost heights to the uttermost depths to the uttermost width and breadth of the whole vast cosmos, God, by his almighty and omnipresent power, upholds the existence of all things and governs them by the power of his hand carrying out his perfect plan for all things, for the greatest glory of his name. And that is what we mean by the term providence. The providence of God is that wonder work that God carries out after his work of creation. And these two powerful works of God reveal him 
as the almighty maker of all things. He's not only the maker, but he's also the preserver and the governor, the ruler and the king of all things. And that means that from that very beginning, when God also formed Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground, he did not then leave them to themselves, but he immediately proceeded to uphold their existence and to govern their existence. He continued to give them life and breath and all things from that moment onward in the Garden of Eden. He was sovereign in control over their thinking, their desiring, their willing, and their actions. By his almighty power, God not only created Adam and Eve, but he followed them everywhere they went in the garden. From moment to moment, he followed them. He preserved them. He governed them. He controlled and ruled over everything that they did. So that Adam and Eve did not frustrate the plan of God. They did not surprise God. And they did not slip out of the grip of his almighty and everywhere present power when they went into the midst of the garden and stood before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and listened to the temptation of the devil and were drawn by that temptation to lust after the forbidden fruit and finally in pride and lust In selfishness, they disobeyed God's command and took the fruit and ate. God was not surprised. God was not frustrated when they did that. Because from the very first moment that he created them, he was near. He never left. He never abandoned them, but he was near them, upholding their existence. Every single thought that arose in their minds, every single desire and even their willing and desiring of that forbidden fruit. And the motion of reaching out their hand and taking it, plucking it, putting it to the mouth, eating, chewing, swallowing. God was sovereign over their every action, including the actions of Satan who tempted them. The providence of God, you see, also rules over the sins that men commit, including the very first sin, the fall of man. God was absolutely sovereign over that sin of man. And that does not mean that God was the author of their sin. It does not mean that God is responsible for their sin. How can we explain that? Because God did not force them to sin against their will. God did not force them to do something that they didn't want to do. God never does that. God, in his mysterious secret hand of providence, rules over the thoughts and desires of men so that his will comes to pass. And yet, he never works in such a way that they are forced to do something they don't want to do. They always do what they want to do, what they choose to do, what they desire to do. And therefore, Adam and Eve are to blame, and we are to blame for the sin that has come into the world. God is not to blame because even though he was sovereign over that sin, and by his almighty and everywhere present power, 
He brought sin into the world through their sinful decision and action. God brought sin into the world for a totally different purpose, for a higher purpose, a purpose that would bring glory and honor to himself. And God brought sin into the world as something that he hates, whereas man sinned as something that he loves. Man sins as something that he wants to do, contrary to the command of God. God brings sin into the world as something that he doesn't love, that he hates, but he brings it into the world for the greater glory of his name. God saw that the greatest glory would come to him, not by the world remaining perfect, but by the world falling into sin, so that in that condition, God would be able to reveal the greatness of his virtues, his justice, his power, his mercy, and his grace, and he would be able to reveal himself as the Savior of sinners, which he could not do if there was no sin. But God is not to blame. Man is to blame. That means God was also just when he sent upon mankind the curse of his wrath, the curse of death, and the punishment of sin. In Romans chapter 8, we read that the whole creation has been made subject to vanity. Verse 20, not willingly, the creation did not will to be made subject to vanity, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. God has subjected the whole creation to vanity, to the bondage of corruption. God has caused his curse to fall upon the creation because of our sin. The curse of death, the curse of decay, the curse of decomposition and destruction called the bondage of corruption. God has done that in hope. And he has given to the creation the hope of being delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. But in this present time, we know that the whole creation is groaning and travailing and pain together until now. Because of the curse of God. The Catechism mentions some of those calamities that fall upon the earth. Famines and droughts. There are others. Earthquakes and storms. Hurricanes and typhoons that bring terrible suffering upon mankind. Those things do not come from the hand of Mother Nature. Those calamities do not come by chance. Those judgments and calamities come from the almighty and everywhere present hand of God. Maybe you recall in the book of Exodus, even the servants of Pharaoh recognized when the plagues came upon Egypt, this is the finger of God, they said. God said through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, or 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. But God was not only sovereign by his providential hand over the fall of man and over the judgments that now come upon man, but by that same almighty and omnipresent power 
God manifested his love and grace for the world and for those whom he has predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, as we read in verse 29 of the chapter. After the fall of man into sin, God did not abandon the creation, but he continued to uphold and govern all things by his almighty and everywhere present power. He he ruled over the development of nations after the Tower of Babel. He ruled over the great flood during the days of Noah. He ruled in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the nations rose up. And in all of the centuries of human history, he ruled over the nation of Israel. His eye was upon Israel, and his eye was upon the line of the Messiah, preserving it, upholding it, making sure that from generation to generation, the seed of the woman was preserved until at last the Virgin Mary brought forth her firstborn son in the little town of Bethlehem and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger and called his name Jesus. And now when Jesus was at last brought up to Jerusalem, the Jews And the Romans did not frustrate or surprise God whatsoever. Judas Iscariot did not surprise him. Peter, when he denied him, did not surprise him. When the disciples forsook him and fled, there was no surprise and there was no frustration of God's plan when he stood before Caiaphas and was condemned, when they spit in his face and slapped him and buffeted him and condemned him to death. And when Pontius Pilate, representing the whole Roman Empire, saying, I find no fault in this man, yet condemned him to the death of the cross. All of this took place according to his eternal counsel and providence. God was not frustrated when he sent his only begotten son into the world, and the world crucified him, rejected him, despised him, wounded and bruised him, and nailed him to a cross on the hill of Calvary outside of Jerusalem. But God was there. He was there in all of those actions of men, upholding the existence of those men. He was sovereign over their thoughts, their desires, their hatred of Jesus. He was in control over all of their decisions. Every step that Jesus took on that road of his passion that led to the cross. God was sovereign over the most heinous sin that has happened in all of history, the crucifixion of his beloved son. And yet God was not to blame for that sin. The Jews were to blame. The Romans were to blame. Herod was to blame. Pilate was to blame. Judas Iscariot was to blame, and we are to blame, because we are no different from them by nature, and we would have done the same thing that they did, and we do the same things that they do, and think the same ways that they think by nature. And therefore, when Peter stood up, filled with the Spirit on Pentecost, And he preached to a primarily Jewish audience. 
Acts 2, verse 22 through 24, and he said, Ye men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God by many signs and wonders, whom you have taken, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain, but God has raised him from the dead. It was God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge. It was God's plan, God's providence. But it was your wicked hands. And we read that they were pricked in their hearts. And they cried out, What must we do to be saved? And he said, Repent. And that's the word that comes to us as well. Repent. God is sovereign over every sin that you have committed. Every sin that I have committed. It didn't surprise him. It didn't frustrate his plan. But rather, he carries out his plan in your life and in my life, even through our sins. And yet, we are to blame. And he says, repent. God was sovereign over the crucifixion of his son because he had a higher purpose. Through that most heinous of all sins in the whole history of the world, God was bringing to pass his own purpose and will. And as the apostle wrote in our passage, through that crucifixion, he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He did not spare him when Judas betrayed him, when the Jews condemned him, when Pilate condemned him. When the Romans put the crown of thorns on his head and nailed him to the cross, never in all of those steps did God spare his son. Never did he take him away from the path of suffering. For you. In his love for you. In his love for me. He delivered him up for us all. He delivered him up to that accursed death to die in our place. To suffer the judgments and the death that we deserved. For the glory, the greatest glory of his grace and mercy is revealed toward us sinners in the death of his son. And so... The apostle says, If God spared not his own son, but by his almighty and omnipresent power, delivered him up to the death of the cross for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How shall he not by his providence work all things together for us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who can accuse us? Who can condemn us? It is Christ that died for us, that is risen again, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. And nothing. For you see, beloved, the providence of God extends to all things. 
And that's our second point this morning. It extends to all things. All things come to us, the Catechism reminds us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand, because of what Christ has done for us. Herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance. Nothing comes by chance. Imagine a world in which everything happens by chance. You have no idea what is going to happen. You have no idea if it will serve your good. You have no hope that the future holds good. You have no comfort in your afflictions. Everything happens by chance. God is nowhere to be seen. Oh, he may have created this world, sure. Maybe in the beginning he created that first original mass of matter and caused it to explode and expand and so that this world came into being. But now he's nowhere to be seen. Everything happens by chance. If good things happen, then you can call it your good luck. And if bad things, you can call it your bad luck. What a horrible and hopeless world to live in. But that's not the world we live in. All things come not by chance. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as good or bad luck. There is the providence of God. Ruling, reigning, governing, controlling absolutely everything. According to his perfect plan, by his almighty and everywhere present power, so that all things come to us, to us by his fatherly hand of love. Now we should make a distinction this morning. All things do not come to the wicked by his fatherly hand of love. All things come to the righteous by his fatherly hand of love. The Catechism here teaches us about the providence of God that all things come to us by his hand of love. The Catechism is not here teaching about a common grace of God, but a common providence of God. As you know, there is a theory of common grace that is taught in many Reformed churches, and this is one of the doctrines that distinguishes the Protestant Reformed churches from many other Reformed churches. This theory of common grace teaches that God actually sends all things to all men by his love and grace and mercy, so that God gives his grace to all and not only to his people. So when they look at this Lord's Day and they see the good things in that list, the herbs and the grass, the rain and the sunshine, the meat and the drink, the health and the riches, and they see that those things come upon the elect and the reprobate, they say, 
Those good things are tokens of his love and tokens of his grace and mercy. They are the proof that God loves you. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, whether you are wicked or righteous, when God causes his sun to shine upon you, that's a sign that he loves you. When he causes the rain to fall upon you, that's a sign that he is gracious to you. Now, we fully admit and teach, too, that God does do good to all men. He gives good gifts to all men. He gives good things to all men. In Matthew 5, verses four, verse 45, our Lord Jesus teaches that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign upon the just and the unjust. We may call that the common providence of God. He does good to all men. But that is not a common grace of God. Just because God sends the rain to the wicked and the righteous doesn't indicate whether he loves both of them. Just because he causes the sun to shine on both of them doesn't indicate that he is gracious to both of them. Imagine if that were the case. Imagine that we lived in a world in which God gives good gifts as tokens of his grace, love, and mercy. If that were the case, then it would evidently be true that God has more love for many of the wicked than he has for many of the righteous. Because God gives much more wealth generally to the wicked than to the righteous. Who are the wealthy of the world? Who have the majority of this world's goods and this world's treasures and this world's pleasures? Generally the wicked, unbelievers, those who do not walk in God's ways. To make it concrete, we think of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in the days of Moses. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. He had all the wealth of Egypt. He had the power over the whole land of Egypt. The Nile River with all of its bounties. He could sit in his palace and feast and banquet all day long and meet and drink to his heart's content. And would we say that God was gracious to him? That God was bestowing his mercies upon him? That God was showing that he loves Pharaoh? Just the contrary. We read that God hardened his heart. In the very next chapter in Romans 9, Verse 17, the Apostle Paul speaks of Pharaoh. He says that God raised up Pharaoh for this purpose, to show his power in him and to magnify his name in all the earth. Nothing there about his grace. In fact, Paul goes on in Romans 9 to speak of the vessels of mercy and the vessels of wrath. And Pharaoh is certainly a vessel of wrath. God did not raise up Pharaoh to shower his mercy and love upon him, but his wrath, to show his power. God exalted Pharaoh in Egypt in order to destroy him in the Red Sea and to reveal his power to save his people. Or we could turn to Psalm 73, God's servant Asaph. There was a time in his life when he looked around him and he saw that the wicked seemed to prosper more than the righteous. 
The wicked have more of the goods of this world, the riches, the pleasures, the treasures. And here am I, struggling and suffering. And he wrote these words. As for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, but there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. I was observing them and it seemed that no matter how they lived their lives, corrupt, wicked, boastful, yet they prospered more and more. They gained more and more riches. They didn't seem to get sick. They didn't seem to struggle. And my feet almost slipped, he says. What a discouragement to the child of God to think that God might love those wicked and ungodly people more than me. Look at my sufferings and my struggles, my pain and sorrow. But read on, Psalm 73, 18 and 19. Asaph says, But when I went into the house of the Lord, I learned the truth of the matter. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed. The truth of the matter is that when God gives good gifts to those who are wicked, to those whom he does not intend to save, he does not give those good gifts to them in his grace and mercy. He does not work them together for their good or to serve their salvation, but he sets them in slippery places so that they use those good gifts to sin even more. The rain that falls on the field of the wicked man and causes him to prosper, he uses that prosperity to fall farther and farther away from God. That first. The Catechism is speaking of the providence of God in this Lord's Day, not the grace of God. The providence of God extends to all things and to all people. But the grace of God is for his people and is particular. When the Catechism says that all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly love and hand, it means to us, to you, child of God, to me, and to believers in all nations, tribes, and tongues, rich and poor, male and female. All things come to us by his fatherly hand and for our good. In verse 28 of the chapter, Paul says, We know that all things, all things work together for good. To whom? To everyone? No. To them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Before the foundation of the world, he foreknew us and he predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his Son. And to us, he works all things together for our good. God 
marshals his almighty and everywhere present power at your service and at mine to serve your good and mine in love for you and for me so that whether it's rain or drought, fruitful or barren years, an increasing bank account or a decreasing one, sickness that lays us on the hospital bed in pain, writhing in agony, or health in which we are free to go about our daily lives, setbacks, disappointments, success, prosperity, all things work together for good to us who love God. What a comfort that is. As we hold on to that comfort, we can look around us without envy, without thinking the grass must be greener on the other side of the fence, in the neighbor's yard, in the neighbor's property, the neighbor who hates God and is a professing unbeliever, and yet prospers. The grass must be greener over there. No, no, it's not. God works all things together for our good, even our sufferings, our pain, and our sorrows. Sometimes he sends beautiful sunshine and gentle showers, good health and strength, success and prosperity, and we enjoy the good things of this life. But sometimes he sends the clouds and the wind, the storms and the droughts, and the rain pounds on the roof of our lives. Persecution, distress, tribulation, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. These things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. But if God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not freely give us all things? He will freely and abundantly give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. And that includes trials and tribulations. If God be for us, who can be against us? What can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall any of those things separate us from Christ? No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. You are a conqueror through Christ who loves you. A conqueror. But you're more than that. You're more than a conqueror. Because you not only win the victory over sin and over all of your trials, but all of your sins and trials actually serve your good. They actually serve your salvation. That's more than a conqueror. That's better than a conqueror through him that loved us. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing at all. And so there are great spiritual benefits to us who know this. Catechism says, what are the advantages of knowing this? First of all, that we can be patient in adversity. In adversity. Troubles, sufferings, trials. Because we know that in those things, although... God has sent the curse of death over the creation because of our sin as human race. Yet we know that through Christ and because of Christ, 
God never sends one single adversity into our life in his wrath. He's not punishing us. He's not destroying us. He's not setting us in slippery paths down to destruction. We know that. You know that, don't you? Why then does he send us sufferings, trials, and troubles? Because he has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his Son. And he uses sufferings also to conform us to the image of his Son. Through our trials, he shapes us. He's fashioning us. The fires of affliction, he humbles us. He teaches us to look up, to trust in him. He breaks us from our obsession with sin. He breaks us from our obsession with the pleasures and treasures of this life. He does many, many spiritual things through trials. And in all of that, he is shaping and fashioning us. We are the vessels of honor that he is shaping by his mercy, so that we look like Jesus. And therefore we can be patient. James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work. That ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. What a beautiful verse. Count it all joy. When you fall into all manner of trials and tribulations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Patience is that Christian virtue of bearing up under the burden of affliction. Bearing up under it. You can do that. You can bear it. It's that Christian virtue of endurance and perseverance through the fires of trials. You can endure. You can persevere. It's that Christian virtue of waiting and waiting and waiting for God to have his perfect work with us until the very end. You can wait. How can we wait and endure and bear? Because we know this truth of his providence that he's working it all together for our good. And because we know that we have hope for something better. He speaks of that hope in this chapter as well. Verse 24, we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth. Why doth he yet hope for? You don't hope for what you already see. You have it. But you hope for what you don't see. 
What don't you see yet? You don't yet see Jesus. You don't yet see the glories of heaven, which are incomparably greater than the sufferings of this present time. You don't see the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness will dwell, where the rivers will flow with streams of living water, and the streets will be paved with gold, and the gates will not be closed by day or by night, where there will be no sun or nor moon, for God will be the light of that place, and he will shine upon us with his fatherly countenance for all eternity. You don't see that yet, do you? But you hope for it. And if we hope for what we do not see, he says, verse 25, then do we with patience wait for it. I can wait for it. I can be patient. In the second place, the catechism teaches us that we can be thankful in prosperity. Thankful. We know who and what is the source of all the good things we have. We know that our bodies, our health, our strength, our talents, our gifts, our jobs, our education, our careers, our house with all of its furnishings, the roof, the dinner table, laden with the bounties of meat and drink, didn't come from the might of our hands. We know that the car we drive, the money in our bank accounts, didn't come from us. We know that we didn't do well in life by chance. We didn't just have good luck. It wasn't Mother Nature. It was the providence of God that made you what you are. It's the providence of God that gave you what you have. It's all God's gifts. And we know that every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. And therefore, in prosperity, we can be thankful. Thankfulness is the Christian virtue of recognizing God as the giver of everything that I have. And acknowledging him and praising him for it. Constantly, through prayer through song, through worship, and through the whole of our life. That's thankfulness. You can be thankful in prosperity. You don't have to live a life of self-indulgence. You don't have to indulge as a glutton and a drunkard. Using the good gifts of God in the service of sin. You can be thankful, and you can live in thankfulness receiving them, those good gifts, with thanksgiving and using them with moderation. We can be thankful 
honoring the Lord with our possessions, giving generously to those in need, because we know the providence of God gave all those things to me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's given them to me as a steward. And thirdly, the Catechism teaches us this spiritual benefit of knowing the providence of God, that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we can place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing will separate us from his love, because all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot even move. A little sparrow can't even fly to the sky in your backyard without the will of your heavenly Father. A little squirrel can't run across the power lines and across the fence. The grass can't grow without the will of your heavenly Father. Not even a single raindrop can fall upon your head without his will, nor can a single hair fall. We know that. And therefore, we can put our firm trust in him for the future. This third benefit means that when we think about the future, when we think about tomorrow, which I'm sure we all do very regularly, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow will take thought for the things of itself. Put your firm trust, your firm, unshakable, steady confidence in God, your Heavenly Father. And do not worry. He has all things in his hands, and he does all things well. What does the future hold? We don't know. We don't have to be afraid. We are able to trust in him because we know the truth of his providence. The providence of God is that work that he began immediately after he created the world in the beginning and has continued up till this present time. The providence of God ruled over the fall of man into sin. The providence of God ruled over the history of man and nations, calamities and judgments, prosperity and adversity. The providence of God ruled over the cross of Jesus Christ and brought about our salvation. The providence of God rules over all of your life and my life from now until the end. And the providence of God will finally deliver the whole creation from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We look around and we can hardly imagine how could God convert this creation into something better, into something marvelous and beautiful and everlasting and free of sin and free of death and pain and sorrow because that's all we see and that's all we know. But God says, I will, I can. This is my world. And I will make a new heavens and a new earth. 
in this groaning, travailing creation with its earthquakes and storms, out of its ashes, I'm going to create something better and eternal and take you to dwell with me there. Knowing that, we can sing with the great multitude of heaven as they say in Revelation 19, verse 6, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to our hearts. What a thrill to hear of thy providence, of thy almighty and omnipresent power. Grant that it might serve to comfort us and to give us hope as we live in this fallen world. We thank thee for the gospel of thy power over the fall and also over the cross. And we thank thee that we may then have hope that thou wilt indeed bring about a new heavens and a new earth. Come, Lord Jesus, and bless thy people.